I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... The day before the most uninspiring general election for decades, Zoe Williams tells us why we deserve better politics in her new book, Get It Together. Zoe Williams writes comment pieces, interviews and reviews. She is best known as a Guardian columnist, but her work has also appeared in The Spectator, Now magazine, The New Statesman and The Evening Standard, amongst other places. She's the author of numerous books on parenting, and her latest book is Get It Together, Why We Deserve Better Politics. So, Zoe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Not at all. So, there's a general election tomorrow. This is my Little Adam's general election show. Although, because there's lots of uh, Ofcom rules, broadcasting rules about elections and stuff. So, we'll talk around the themes in the book, which is basically about sort of the state of the nation, what's, what's sort of wrong, what can we do about it book. We're roughly the same age, and I think this is the worst, the weirdest general election. Is it, is it also I the think. worst time you've been alive politically? Yeah, I guess so. I think so. I mean, I tend to look back on the, the sort of you know the classic sort of Thatcher era nowadays with a bit of bit of affection <laughs> because exactly. things are just so yeah. know, so exactly. odd now. Because in the in a way, the Thatcher era, it was very kind of hope. It seemed really hopeless. I mean, I was a kid in. I was 10 in 1989, and it seemed really... You know, my mum was in the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like... It, it seemed like they were a bunch of weirdos, mm-hmm. and, and Thatcher was going to rule forever, and that was quite depressing. Yeah. But at least there was there was an alternative. She kept saying there is mm. no alternative, but there actually was one. There was a kind of Labour Party launching a full-bodied ideological opposition. And that's so, it. It was like the Cold War in that, you know, it was terrifying and you thought you were going to die at any moment, yeah. but there was a definite enemy, somebody out there who everything was against, whereas there's no ideological thing in it. Everybody's the same, aren't they? Both for the major parties. They just seem much of a muchness, really. Exactly, and there's nobody making even the most... Even the lightest kind of structural objections mm-hmm. to really serious problems. You know, I'm thinking specifically with that. Um, Rachel Reeves saying that she that the Labour Party wasn't the party for people on benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I have now dissed somebody in the Labour Party, and in the interest of fairness, I will find somebody in every other party to slag off. Yes, that's what we have to do. Yeah, and, and that's fine. That is no problem. But she, basically, in saying that, she was buying into that rhetoric where a person on benefits is different to a person mm-hmm. in a job. Now, she knows as well as anybody else knows that 
most people on benefits are actually in work anyway. Mm-hmm. She also knows, or she should know, if she's part of the labour movement, that actually unemployment is a function of bad luck, and it's not because the person is a shit person. Mm-hmm. And you can't just say, I'm not interested in those in representing those people. Mm-hmm. It's a really fundamental move to what they would call the centre, and I would call the far right, mm-hmm. you know, to say this whole package of, of uneconomically productive citizens are no longer proper citizens yeah. and we don't really care whether we get their vote or not. That is in my mind a far right position so that's what we're talking about really, it's not a kind of it's not a limp Labour so much it's not a kind of, and actually there are some great people in the Labour Party but it's just the acceptability mm-hmm. of saying things which are really rampantly Thatcherite at quite a high level And that's the same thing across the whole spectrum we'll as we go through the through the interview, we'll talk about the various general areas that you cover in the book. But just to on that same theme, like immigration is the obvious one in the, you know the entire discussion. There's been I almost sometimes think that UKIP is like it's almost like a conspiracy just to so so the mainstream <laughs> parties yeah, can shift the, shift yeah, the discussion yeah. so far to the right, and we have to say so. This is where we are. This is the position we are whenever we talk about immigration, which you know. You're not supposed to talk about, apparently, even though everybody never stops talking about it. It has to be in this position where it's a bad thing and we yeah. need to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. There seems to be you know, no other argument out there in, in the political sphere. There's nothing, as far as I can see, there is nothing where people... Are, there's no argument for immigrants as human beings, mm-hmm. right? So you get some arguments sometimes for immigrants as economic units. Mm. And, you know, they bring this much more to the economy than they take. Even those terms are really ugly because, you know, taking from the economy, they mean kind of I broke my arm and mm-hmm. I went to hospital. They don't mean... Everything is kind of repackaged as either kind of earning or taking. But, you know, if you can't make a case for immigrants on a human level, then you're not talking about them as human beings, mm-hmm. basically. I think the problem is that... Because we've got this kind of, on the one hand, we've got this rhetoric where people on benefits aren't real people. So people, disabled people, unemployed people, people with mental health problems, mm-hmm. you know, all it's, a huge, it's actually a huge number of people altogether um, are suddenly no longer citizens. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of clinging on to citizenship by their fingernails. And then they get told that it, there's this kind of immigrants, which are kind of imagined on block as an economic kind of unit, mm-hmm. are better than them because they bring this much or they take that little that creates a kind of real divide and rule between the kind of poor british and the recent arrivals and that leads inexorably to the kind of nigel farage Mm -hmm. look they're taking your jobs because he's tapping into a kind of hostility which actually isn't a hostility towards Mm -hmm. immigration it's a hostility towards a political class that makes people feel like parasites so I wanted to get us on to, you know, why are people so disenchanted with politics? But it's, that's it right there, isn't it, for a start? If you've made a third, a half of your electorate feel like they don't matter, yeah. then... I mean, it's mad, isn't it? And that's what I find really, really strange, is just by the numbers, you would think they would think, well, hang on, there are 21% of people on housing benefit. So that's one in five people mm-hmm. need to cash benefit to pay their rent. Surely demonising benefit claimants rather than landlords is going to alienate more people. Mm-hmm. Somehow, those 2% of people who own property are considered more important to the kind of electoral structure than those 21% of people who can't, even on wages, pay. So, you know, this is like a really critical weirdness that I can't fathom. And it seems like 
Well, I've got no idea what's going to happen. I mean, there are obviously, there's polls going on as they always are. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But it does seem like the first election, again, in, in my lifetime, where I really have almost no... Oh, in fact, not even don't know what's going to happen, but I don't know what I want to No, happen. no, no, I know exactly what you mean. It's not that I don't care, it's that I don't want... There's nothing I wish for. There are lots of things I ardently wish mm-hmm. not to happen. But it's very, very... And it's very weird for us, you know, as people in our 40s... Oh, actually, I don't know, you might be 39. No, I am in my 40s. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's people in their 40s who are meant to be... We're meant to have reached this position of political maturity. Mm-hmm. We're meant to be in the establishment generation. You know, we're meant to be the people who politics talks to. And I've never felt more separate from it mm-hmm. or more kind of unrepresented by it. So if I feel like that and you feel like that, yeah. what must it feel like to be 21? And again, you describe in this book yourself, because you know, there's various, again, both on the left and the right, there are always arguments about, oh, you know, you're too rich to have an opinion on this sort yeah, of thing, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or whatever. And you say repeatedly, you know, from your education to, you know, your job, to the fact that, you know, you managed to buy a house nice and early, that you know, you're in a pretty good position. Yeah, right? So yeah, as you yeah. said, if you're, if you're disenchanted with it, then yeah. absolutely, why would they expect other people not to be? But then I think the, the, I think the interesting thing there is that people always... People always kind of... Politics talks to people as though they're motivated by self-interest, now mm-hmm. more than ever. And that's the kind of politics they understand, you know, and that makes sense to them. But actually, nobody really... I just don't know anybody who only cares about themselves or even only cares about their own generation. Mm-hmm. I genuinely... A couple of people who, who write for the Daily Mail, but no genuine human beings who I've actually met mm-hmm. has... Nobody has ever said, as long as I... As long as my lot is all right... I don't care what happens next. Mm-hmm. Even people without kids don't say that. Even for those people, you can break yeah. that argument down, you know, oh, okay, well, I, I pay for myself and, you know, I pay yeah. for private medical insurance or whatever, but it's okay, but, you know, what about the roads? You know, yeah, what about yeah, the army? Yeah. And also, <laughs> what kind of country do you want to live in? I mean, where, that's great, you've got hospital care, but, but there are people dying on the street around you. I mean, who wants to live like that? Jeff Dyer, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So, what's the idea behind this book then? Why did you? What did you think um, to do? I guess the idea is that you know you've become really inured to kind of arguments, weird arguments, and since the crash, the arguments I think have got radically strange. Mm-hmm. So we keep getting told that you know the eurozone crashed because Spanish people were lazy or. Greek people didn't pay tax, and we're told that the Labour Party broke the economy 
but by apparently spending too much on benefits, even though it was a global financial crash, which the Labour Party had nothing to do with, except that they failed to regulate against the banking sector, and they allowed the finance sector to get so bloated, and the very people who were castigating them for that are the people, exactly the people who also voted for that and thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. So we've got a huge, huge, like barrage of false information you know austerity is a false policy mm-hmm. it is not going to work on the by its own terms it is not actually going to sh- shrink anything it's not sh- going to shrink the deficit it's not going to shrink public debt what it's going to do is make everybody poorer but make the state smaller so okay it will str- it will shrink public debt but increase private debt but we're, st- we're still going to be the same indebted country mm-hmm. so all the terms of the debate are either completely deliberately mendacious or they're kind of accidentally repeated by people who just haven't questioned them enough. And I guess when when you start to, for a little while, they don't seem that connected. So people saying that, you know, public services have to be outsourced because the private sector is more efficient don't really seem connected to people saying that, you know, local housing allowance has to be reduced because... Otherwise, because it was the high benefits bill which crashed the economy in the first place, and you think, well, those aren't really connected. But as you start to as you start to see what's going on, <laughs> it's pretty plain that these arguments are being lodged in the in the interests of capital. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty plain. So they're being lodged in the in the name of very large corporations. They're being lodged in the name of the landlord class. They're being lodged in the name of really people who are extremely wealthy. And certainly in in the UK and, and across Europe, I would suggest. What we're seeing with austerity, that was me doing air quotes, even though you can't see that, is just a redistribution of money away from the state into mm-hmm. private hands. That's basically what we're seeing. So I think once once that's happened, once you once you kind of see it as a kind of coordinated strategy, you start thinking, OK, this is mad. You can't just not say anything. <laughs> you know, you can't... That's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that, yeah, that was the idea behind doing it. Let's go through some of the areas, as I said, then, that you, mm. that you cover in the book. So in this first point as we've got time in this first part I just want to look I mean quite generally at the concept of poverty right? there oh, yeah. are two things about poverty that we often say first of all well poverty doesn't really exist in this country anymore you know, we're a rich, rich western country the sixth biggest economy in the world so nobody's really poor here and actually if they are poor here it's not like we live in Marley or something yeah, yeah, they're not yeah. really yeah. poor do you yeah, know what I mean? because so, they're, a because they're useless and b because and b they probably won't die of cholera so it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter so let's talk about the actual reality yeah. of that. Well, the, the reality of poverty is that you're right. I mean, well, those people who we were kind of summoning in our piss take are right in the sense that when you've got a clean water supply and a generally herd immunised population, you're not as badly off as people in Gabon. And that's, that's a fact, and I'd happily admit that. But the truth of it is, we, are, we have got a very, very... We've got a terrible kind of bedrock of really, really serious poverty in which you know we I mean everybody keeps saying a million people used food banks last year but that's people who probably the other they might have used food banks one week but the other 51 weeks of that year mm-hmm. they'll have been un- unable to afford basic things you know one in five families couldn't afford a trip to the beach mm-hmm. last year so that is massive isn't it 85% of teachers have taken food in for kids who they know that are not eating enough a similar number say that things the high like big ticket items like shoes and coats kids just don't have we've got the, the, the poor in this country are poorer than they are in anywhere else in Europe apart from the parts of Eastern Europe like Croatia but you know then re- remember that their standard of living is a lot lower I mean their 
cost of living is a lot lower. So, I mean, that is adjusted, of course, but it's mm-hmm. pretty stark, you know. And there's a tendency in the UK to think that we're a bit like Europe, only better. Mm-hmm. So we're like, well, surely we're just a bit like France and Germany, only we do things better. Mm-hmm. That is not true. France and Germany, and even Italy and Spain, are distributing the money, the wealth of the nation in a different way. And, you know, Spain is a bit of a different case because of the mortgage scandal, which is a bit too complicated to go into. But we're kind of allowing a very entrenched Mm -hmm. seam of of kind of near destitution. And then above that, you've got like, there's a group called the Housing Pinched. It's like 1.2 million people. This is a a term coined by the Resolution Foundation. And they... And actually, a lot of people will recognise this, but they won't. They probably won't admit it to their friends. They're kind of they're not on housing benefit. Mm. Their, their wages are kind of okay. They tend to be double income, okay earners. But they're spending so much on housing that their te- their disposable income at the end of the week is mm-hmm. sixty quid. Now, sixty quid is kind of un- it's kind of unimaginable. Do you know what I mean? You're kind of that's not disposable income like after you've bought food. That's getting into work, mm. getting food. That's getting everything. So. These are kind of people who probably out, probably to the untrained eye are kind of keeping it together. Mm-hmm. But they're keeping it together with very high personal debt on the basis that it can't stay this bad forever. Mm-hmm. And they're keeping it together because they're really ashamed. Now, I think this is a real problem. <laughs> and those sort of people are turning up at food banks. Yeah, I know. And actually, when you go and... when you They took this out of the book because they said it was a bit too niche. I was kind of talking to the reader as though they were also a, a journalist, a jobbing journalist. But... Actually, you would go. You'd go to you go to a food bank to do interviews, and there's always somebody like in an L.K. Bennett suit who doesn't want to talk to you because they're kind of because they could be you, mm-hmm. and it's really embarrassing. The shame is just incredible. But then you're ashamed because you can see that they're ashamed, and you're ashamed of the country, and they're ashamed of their situation, and you're ashamed of everything. You know. But you don't really get those interviews because people won't talk about it. But then it still sort of feeds down to that thing, which is, well, everybody else that's here in that queue where you pretend to be, they should be here, but I shouldn't yeah, be yeah, here. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. So it's still like, I know. this is everybody else's It's very divided. But we were talking about private debt the other day and how it's, it's, it's extraordinary now. I can't remember what the amount we're adding every month is, but it's really, really high and it's unsecured. It's not asset set back so it's not people borrowing on mm-hmm. their house it's just people borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and I think that's probably the housing pinch to probably in there but um, somebody said you know there's a lot of shame involved in being in debt there's more shame in being in debt than there is in being a woman <laughs> so the kind of building a movement out of people who are in debt is quite difficult mm-hmm. but like the women's movement once it goes it really goes and I don't think I don't think the status quo have thought this through, mm-hmm. right? They, if if the if the kind of next generation of students come out in fifty grand's worth of debt, and then they're piling other debts on top of that because living costs are too high, and they'll never afford a house because of all their debt and their low wages and the housing market having been crazy, and they're kind of struggling to make rent, which then blah blah. blah. If you get if you anger a generation so much that they just say I'm I'm not paying this debt, I'm going on a debt strike. Mm-hmm. Then you have a very serious challenge to your to your system. And the other aspect of this is, you know, everybody's heard of zero hours contracts. And again, it's something we think affects people not like us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's menial jobs or jobs that would be on zero contract. 
But, and I was surprised that some of the people, when reading your book, that are actually being sort of forced to do zero hours contracts as well. But since I wrote this, I've seen some hilarious examples. So in the book, there's a radiographer on a zero hours contract, there's a Hansard reporter, there's a Buckingham Palace valet. Now, okay, but the Buckingham Palace valet, that's quite a weird example. But these are kind of reputable institutions who had once mm-hmm. offered you a job for life and now they're offering you a constantly floating amount of work. But I saw an advert for a lecturer in Warwick University that was both zero hours and below the minimum wage. So it's £5 an hour. But you just think, the brass neck of these people, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a really, it's, it's a really big deal. And these are, these are jobs that, you know, a decade ago would have been considered careers, you know, proper, solid, salaried careers. Even those sort of jobs are now so... I mean, the, the people doing those jobs are, are vulnerable. They're in the position where they can't build a... You know, how do you build a, a life? How do you, you know, you do yeah. all the things you, you yeah. would think were, were normal to your peer group if you can't even have a job that has a... Yeah, yeah, a yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Zoe Williams. We're talking about her book, Get It Together, Why We Deserve Better Politics. And Zoe, leading straight on from what we've just been talking about at the end of that first part, I mean, the other thing that's, that you know suddenly has put a huge amount, most people in the country, into insane amounts of debt and cost is housing. So let's talk about the various problems that have happened to our housing market. It's absolutely hilarious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, there's part, part of it is like a Thatcherite sell-off of council stock. And the, the new Tory idea to sell off social housing is A, mad, because they don't own that housing. So they're effectively, this kind of great free market party is effectively appropriating the property of, of a private entity. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be third sector, but they don't, they're not part of the government. So that is weird. But it's, it's really, really obvious and straightforward that, you know, pre-Thatcher's sell-off, people lived in, people on low incomes lived in housing because they're otherwise... If it wasn't state-owned, their wages wouldn't have covered it. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, if you want to, if you want to make a kind of case for the market correcting itself, you would say the market will correct once they own the ones who don't own. And housing benefit, incidentally, was only introduced as a kind of weird mm-hmm. technical lever to tide people over while they figured out how to own mm-hmm. their own house. Um, and then suddenly that's and then suddenly, pretty much the most expensive. Well, benefit. suddenly we're spending 25 times more on housing benefit than we are on building new housing stock. Mm. And then even when we build new housing stock, we don't keep it in state hands. We hand it over to the social housing sector that often behaves like a private company. I mean, it often does have that kind of atmosphere and that imperative. Mm-hmm. So 
that so you know the the kind of the problem at the crisis at the bottom is that if you're going to allow your housing stock to outstrip your wages and how the average house is now 10 times the average wage then you are you need quite a lot of state provision you basically need state provision for everybody on a below average wage and you need quite a lot of flexibility around people mm-hmm. on an average wage is quite an expensive way of doing business mm-hmm. right if you allow the market to run away and you don't have any stock of your own so the government is spending huge huge amounts and actually it's not learning its own lesson it keeps saying owning your own house will make you into a kind of better citizen mm-hmm. but if it could learn its lesson as a government it would realize that owning its own housing stock would put it in a much stronger position because it's going to be spending that money one way or another anyway but if it had stock at least it would be its own drains it was pouring money down etc then you've got to ask why how has a market why aren't market forces working right why isn't the cost of a house tethering to the wage because that is the key question you know if if bread was too expensive for us to afford well then, a number of things would happen. I don't know what, but a number of things mm-hmm. would happen. And that never happens with housing. It just goes up and up and up and up. And I've watched this, and as you say, I'm 41. I've, I've, bought, a, I've bought a house. And I look, like, I look like a kind of the recipient of absurd good fortune. And people, you often hear people saying this. Oh, you're, I was really lucky. Oh, I was really, really lucky. I'm in, I'm in this council flat and they can't get me out. I was really, really lucky. I got in early and now I'm in this flat. We shouldn't really be seeing housing as like a stroke of outrageous good fortune. Mm-hmm. It's a basic human right, you know. Anyway. Well, what, I was going to we... say, can you go, go through, you talk about it in the book. So go through your example because, I mean, it is, I mean, obviously this is going on all around the country. Obviously we're talking here in, in London, which is exaggerated example but actually nowadays not that much mm. but to talk through the example of your own flat because okay, it is, it yeah. is all, all the streets yeah because yeah because no, it is so, incredible so i bought a i bought a flat in dagmar road in two in the year 2000 and it was 150 grand and i thought it was really really outrageously expensive but i was on 40 grand which was a lot i was 27 and it was it was a lot of money but anyway so i bought this flat and it was in the surveyor's report, it said this, the proximity to social housing might be a problem. So they had social housing down one side of the road. And it, was, and it really struck me that the surveyor was basically saying having poor people living near you mm-hmm. might bring down the value of your house. <laughs> you're like, well, you're in, what do you expect? You're in London. Um, anyway, so I left that in 2006, by which time it was worth 300000 And then I went back to a house very near it mm-hmm. in 2014 by which time it's worth 650,000 now these figures make perfect sense to people who know about housing they're like well of course the average house doubles every seven years those are seven year increments mm-hmm. that's exactly what you should expect but if you actually put that in human terms and imagine what human beings need to get that kind of mortgage mm-hmm. they either need to be bankers or they need to be two incredibly well-paid professionals and actually it's not that often that you meet people both earning mm-hmm. 150 grand or both earning 100 grand normally one is a bit less well-paid than the other or they need to be on a kind of 32 40 year mortgage so they can take out six or seven times their salary so you've got a situation where the poor are already completely stuffed Mm -hmm. by the lack of housing provision but the people in the middle who would have thought of themselves as the backbone Mm -hmm. you know the accountants your doctors your teachers your teachers especially don't have a hope they don't have a hope and all the jobs that we would have really really thought looked at at university and thought what brilliant job that looks like you know so working being an entrepreneur working for an agent 
agent or being in films. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are kind of 30, 40 grand jobs. So you've got the people who are our age now, that as we were in 2000, look at the housing market and say, that is mad, mm. that's mad, there's no way. But the, what's the reason? What you have to ask now is the reason, right? And the reason is really simple. The reason is that if banks will extend credit, that's how money is created. Money is created by banks extending credit, and 85% of that extension of credit is on residential, existing residential property. Mm-hmm. So they're not even extending credit to a contractor so they can build you a lovely new flat. They're just extending it on that Victorian conversion. If they do that, then there's what, where's the break? Where's mm-hmm. the break on prices if a bank will lend you a limitless amount? There is no break. And that is the problem that we kind of created in the 90s and noughties and now. Obviously now it's been kind of intensified by kind of foreign investment and foreign investors using London as a kind of safety deposit box. So they buy 35 flats and they just keep them as mm-hmm. an investment. Now, that... This seems it seems preposterous to me that we've got a kind of fundamentally xenophobic party in the in the shape of UKIP, mm. and yet nobody can make this simple point that there is no reason to open up your housing market to mm-hmm. foreign investment who aren't going to use it, who are just using it as a financial instrument. That's mad. You know, we've got to live here. Mm. We can, we actually can't afford to let people use it as an asset, and we certainly can't afford to let people use it, inflate it as an asset bubble. Mm-hmm. So I just don't understand. <laughs> so, I mean, the other side of this, well, first of all, I was going to say, you know, it, it seems incredible just to think, you know, we are, we're talking about a an ex-council flat that's worth yeah. half a million pounds right now. If I was the sort of person that could afford to spend half a million pounds on something, you would think you would expect yeah. slightly more for your money wherever it was, yeah, right, for a yeah. start. But the more important <laughs> matter is all of those people, the people in the middle that would have expected mm. to be able to buy that sort of property they have to live somewhere right they've all got to live somewhere they exist they're not just going to disappear hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
So that means everybody is being driven into the rental sector, which yeah. is the other part of this, because we had this big scam a few years back where everybody was buying two or three yeah, yeah, houses yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to buy to let. So let's talk about what's happened there, this the problem well, with the, this. We now live in this sort of rentier society. I found it really irritating. I did this thing today with a load of charity leaders, and one of them said, I don't know why we have to be such a homeowning society anyway. In Germany, they don't own their homes. Now, okay, okay. You know, maybe this is a kind of peculiar little Englander thing. But look, renting now is really, really precarious. You can annoy your landlord with your tone of voice and get kicked out. There's an estate in Brixton, a private estate, not a social one, where I was interviewing them, and this guy, his rent's gone up by in increments of 100% for two years. And now that he's objected, they've evicted him. And the reason for this is that the buy-to-let mortgage, which you're exactly right to bring up, that came in in 1992, I think. It was certainly had its 18th birthday recent. Mm-hmm. No, it was 1996, because it was 18 in 2014. And the buy-to-let mortgage didn't really take off before then, mm-hmm. because it was too much of a risk. So the only way to kind of insulate against the risk was to make was to put all the risk on the back of the tenant and none of it on the landlord. Mm-hmm. So the assured shorthold tenancy came in, then all the kind of regulations around tenants and their rights and their kind of nominal rent capping. I mean, it wasn't rent capping, but we did used to have some breaks on rents. All of that went. And in order to make the buy-to-let mortgage a profitable mortgage. And the net result of that is not just that, you know, we have got a rentier economy with this kind of very small class of people living off everybody else's labour. But when you go to kind of... There was a... Faisal Islam, actually, who's quite a kind of, you know, middle-of-the-road kind of commentator, wrote that book. It's about, it's about mortgages. I can't remember what it's called. But he, he went to a housing fair in Newcastle and the buy-to-let, kind of prospective buy-to-letters, were being offered mortgages on kind of 5% deposit, 0% deposit, sometimes underwater mortgages where you've got paid 5% of the value mm-hmm. of the house just to buy the house. These were all being offered to the buy-to-let market, whereas the actual people who wanted to live in them were being offered really stringent, boring mortgage terms, you know, like 10% deposit up front and then 4% interest. Like, really, much. it was much tougher to get a foothold if you weren't a developer. Mm-hmm. It was much tougher to get a foothold if you weren't trying to profit from it. And then, of course, you can, you can charge your mortgage payments back in tax relief anyway. So mm-hmm. the incentive is not only to be a buy-to-let landlord, but also to be a heavily leveraged buy-to-let mm-hmm. landlord because the less capital you've put in and the more you owe, the more you can get back in tax relief. Yeah, which is completely inexplicable. It's completely bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. So, I mean, I, I think I think that's one of the pressure points that I can really imagine, you know, being able to push on and it crumbling quite, quite mm-hmm. easily. Because I don't think that's suiting anybody. I really don't. I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
I want to move on then to talk about the NHS. Somebody in the book describes it as you know one of the one of the seven wonders of the world, sort of thing. And a thing that you know everybody everybody is supposed to love yeah, as yeah. this you know amazing invention that we did. You know we did as a society. Mm. We came out, and it's you know gradually, and it's not a new thing. You know it's been happening for successive governments, gradually being chipped away, gradually being having the market bought into it. Bits a bit privatized and stuff. Why are we so determined to? Do destroy the NHS. Oh, God, no. It's so weird, isn't it? Because you're exactly right. In, Thatcher openly wanted to destroy the NHS. The weird thing is no politician ever admits it because they know how much we like mm. it. So they'll never, ever, ever fight an election on the destruction of the NHS. But Thatcher, and there are minutes of cabinet meetings where she was openly trying to privatise it. When Tony Blair came in, he came in with a lot of promises about targets and the targets kind of messed a lot of things up. But the, his heart was in the right place, apparently. But what really messed it up... And price-based competition came in under Labour, which I think was ideologically stupid. Mm-hmm. But what really messed it up, of course, was PFI. And that's been the most depressing, well, not the most depressing by any stretch of imagination, but it's been a very depressing element of doing this book mm-hmm. is, is just how much, just how much there is to pay back and how gargantuan these mm-hmm. sums are. You know, they were kind of part of the reason for going into PFI deals was that the debt was then kept off government books. I don't know why, because it's still government, it's still money that the government owes, but it it did and it made everything look good superficially. Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely extraordinary. There's this spreadsheet you can go into where you just click on... It's a government, it's a kind of transparent government. You can just click on the project, whether it's a kind of school building in Bedfordshire or a hospital wing in Warwick and see how much it costs and how much we'll be paying back over 30 years. And the differences are just inexplicable. You know, 12 million cost, 130 million paying back. Mm -hmm. It's just really ridiculous. It runs into billions. So that's, I think, how Tony Blair really, really, really strangled the NHS. Because so many of these trusts that are going bust now, they're going bust because they've got these really disadvantageous Mm -hmm. BFI deals. The Conservative attempt with the Health and Social Care Act to just burn everything, but as far as I can make out, is just pure red-blooded privatisation. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. That's what they're there for. And that's why I think, that's kind of what I, part of why I wrote the book was because we keep acting surprised when they do this thing that they do. When, you know, George Osborne sells the post office and his best man buys it. Mm -hmm. You know, we keep acting surprised. (laughs) But actually what we've got to do is be a bit less surprised and a bit more annoyed Mm -hmm. and kind of launch a bit more, launch a bit of a more of an objection, I think. Because I think the element of them being reasonable people who just did a thing that maybe we don't particularly understand really stifles people's voices when actually they can see perfectly well what's just happened. You also talk about how much so, so much of that thinking is happening in education yeah. as well now in schools. Actually, there's a, there's, a, there's a really funny bit where you go and you say, I went to visit um, three academies at the Doyle they were all really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. They were really good. Well, they've, they've still got plenty of critics. I mean, the, the thing is with free schools, they're kind of there's a lot of, there's a lot of straight corruption, mm-hmm. and it's really demoralising because you just think, you know, your whole leftist project, your whole progressive idea is people are basically decent and want the decent things for their communities, mm-hmm. but actually, I mean, you've got in free schools, you've got 
faith schools under financial mismanagement, you know, and not financial, not small bits of mm-hmm. mismanagement, really serious, hundreds of thousands of pounds going missing. You've got so many, the National Audit Office, was it then or the Public Accounts Committee? I can't remember. One of those two bodies found something like over half of free schools and academies had related party transactions, which just means they're buying computers off their brother mm-hmm. or they're buying school uniform off their aunt. You know, I mean, really dodgy stuff. <laughs> you don't you don't want that in your school system. And basically, again, I think that the whole academisation process and the free school process where, you know, there's no local authority oversight, there are no pesky regulations, you don't have to train the teachers, mm-hmm. you don't have, they're not members of the unions, all of that stuff. Everything about that was kind of packaged up so that if they did want to bring the private sector in, then they, then it would be easier. Mm-hmm. And what, and how did we respond? We responded by going, well, Nikki Morgan, do you intend to privatise? And she said, no, 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 I don't. So again, it's that thing of like constantly being wrong-footed by mm-hmm. their denials. But we've really got to wake up and say, okay, they want to privatise everything and they will always deny it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> those are the two principles that we've got to, we've got to walk into. Also, this is about the education of you know, the next generation of people who are going to be working, putting money into the economy and stuff. And, and I guess that's where we've got to in thinking about why we... Why do we go to school? You know, what's yeah, yeah. the thinking now as to why we send children to school in the first place? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're right. Because the, the, whole, the whole model, it's a bit like the parliamentary model. You look at it and you think if you were designing that from scratch mm-hmm. now, it would look as unlike that as it possibly could. But um, the school model was built for industrialists to have a literate workforce in order to do their work, right? And it was... There was kind of a nominal social mobility in it that people that were incredibly good at deductive thinking would be kind of picked up and transplanted into very elite institutions. Mm-hmm. And people who were quite good at deductive thinking would be nurtured in some other way and everybody else would at least know how to read so they could mm-hmm. work in a factory. Now, that's not really... For a start, deductive thinking might be a bit overrated in terms of the skills you might need for a modern mm-hmm. job. Secondly, it's not very responsive to the way people learn and think. So, you know, at the moment we've got a school system where you have you want every single person in the class to reach a very fixed set of targets over over exactly the same period of time. Mm-hmm. Any teacher at all will say learning is like a mountain path. Sometimes they go very fast and sometimes they don't go very fast at all. And every single child in the class will be different. And to kind of when you try and stratify them and force them over these hurdles at the exact same pace, what all you really do is you, you basically kind of pollute all of their educations. <laughs> the ones who are finding it easy are bored, and the mm-hmm. ones who are finding it hard are stressed, and the ones who are finding it kind of okay probably won't be finding it okay in six months' time. Mm-hmm. So we're really, we really, we're trying to automate the process, and that's exactly the opposite of what we should be trying to do. Because really, if you're gonna, if you're thinking about kind of human fulfilment, that is not going to come from making everybody the same. Tell us your uh, conversation with Michael Hesseltine. Oh, yeah, of course. So I was interviewing him in front of people. Otherwise, I would have really torn him to pieces, <laughs> I think. But um, he was saying, like, basically, we think the opposite of every single thing. So I was saying, you know, in, in any field where there's, like, three or four big dominating companies, it's always bad because there's never competition. It's always just a simulacrum of competition. Mm. And he said, that's rubbish. Supermarkets are better today than they've ever been. 
I was like, okay, we'll let that slide. Um, and then he said, what is the point of education? The point of education is so that your gardener can read the word poison. Because if your gardener can't read the word poison, he's going to poison your grass. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's actually not the point of education, <laughs> to create a class to serve you. That's not what it is. <laughs> into little atoms i'm neil denny and i'm talking to zoe williams about her book get it together why we deserve better politics and so i want to end up in this part talking about you know what can we do how can we change things generally but um to begin with let's talk about you know we've been talking about politicians really in the main yeah and of course the politicians have allowed this stuff to happen but they're not ultimately responsible for it. Oh, let's talk about the, you know, there's been a massive financial crash, a recession. Let's talk about the banks, mm-hmm. first of all. These are the people that ultimately are responsible for this. Yes and no. I mean, the banks operate to the... There is a problem with amorality in banking. And that is abetted by politicians. They, they do... I mean, there, there was a problem with the brown mm. balls era where they were just so thrilled with the financial sector you know Gordon Brown thought all the problems had been solved he genuinely thought we were at an end of boom and bust Mm -hmm. and Ed Balls was just thrilled thrilled to be invited to a cocktail party by Goldman Sachs you know there was no proper oversight and Prem Seeker this economist has done a lot of work on kind of City of London fraud charges over years and you know he, he turned one up in 1996 they were not operating to basic principles of honesty. They were operating to basic principles of a mark. Mm-hmm. You know, if you could, whatever it was, if you could punt it to somebody stupider than yourself, then mm-hmm. you'd won. And that is, you know, you cannot have a market like that. It's like you've got a really nice fruit and veg market and then somebody starts selling Coke at the end and they are cutting it with aspirin or taking your money and running away or sell it, or telling you their friend has it and then beating you up around the corner. It's that kind of level of difference between a normal market and a dodgy market. But the Coke dealers, eventually something goes so wrong that they have to destroy the rest of the market, you know, which is effectively what they did. When the crash happened, there was a global recession. Millions and millions of jobs were lost. And we're basically going to be living with the consequences Mm -hmm. of that crash and the subsequent austerity for probably the rest of our lives. And that is really, really astonishing. But I wouldn't say that politics is completely blameless. I would say that 
Yeah, I mean, I don't blame. I don't blame them for not seeing it coming, mm-hmm. even though some people did, because we have an optimism bias in human nature. But I do blame them for being quite so cavalier. I think. But no, you're you're right. There is a problem with bankers. And I was doing this thing today, and somebody called Russell Brand naive because he kept going on about the bankers, and you, like that's a really naive thing to want to put people in prison when they defraud you. And I thought, is that naive though, really? Because what's the point of a legal system? Otherwise, that's putting people in prison for benefit fraud. Mm. <laughs> What's the point of a legal system that cannot, that actually doesn't have any mechanism for punishing people mm-hmm. who steal money? I mean, what is the point? So anyway, I, I mean, the example I always come up with in the book is that when I was writing it, I was trying to, I was just doing a section on Barclays, and this is this is post crash, right? This is after we said, okay, these heedless risk taking this you know socialization of losses and mm-hmm. privatization of wins this has got to stop so it's after all that the LIBOR and the Forex and the rigging and the mm-hmm. money laundering and all of those scandals started coming out just so never forget these are all discrete scandals not only were they selling each other crap debts wrapped up in completely illegible packages mm-hmm. and then and destroying each other's risk models, they were also rigging the Forex, they were also rigging the LIBOR rate, they were also allowing money laundering. This, you know, it's a cra- Anyway, so I was trying to do the Barclays stuff, and every single time I did it, it was wrong, because they'd had another fine. I mean, so it was ridiculous, and the fines didn't seem to make any... They didn't seem to make any difference, say, to the behaviour of the bank, and they didn't seem to make any real kind of... They didn't seem to make any recompense to the crime that had been committed, mm-hmm. you know, so... I don't but know. they must know that there's all these time bombs coming in the future, know. you know. I know, and then they set money aside, <laughs> and then say, sorry, we can't, pay, we can't pay any tax, because we've set aside... <laughs> We set aside all that profit that would have been profit in order to pay your fines. And, and you know, so anyway, there, it's wrong already, the book. I think once it went, it's May now, it's a month since this book came out, and already it's wrong because they get fined 100 million quid here, 100 million quid there all the time. But the thing is, they can't... What a stupid thing, right? You get a bank that you know it can't go bust mm-hmm. because you have to bail it out, so you charge it a fine that you know won't send it bust, so you're basically causing it no anxiety, mm-hmm. and it just finds that in the profits and no hit is taken to the CEO's salary. Mm-hmm. What a stupid system. So, I mean, I don't think it is naive to say we've got to get back to a time when you're actually personally liable for the decisions you make. We've got to. You mentioned tax, um, and yeah. so I do, I do want to talk about tax, but not necessarily in the context of um, you know massive tax avoidance, massive tax fraud that's been going on. We all know the, the amounts of money that huge companies are, are withholding and what could perhaps be done with that money. But they got away with that because there is this sort of general idea that everybody hates the idea of tax and mm. nobody wants to pay tax. And you, you, you look at that from a different perspective in this book, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think everybody should love tax because tax is what builds the things that we're most proud of I genuinely think that I'm not people always look at me like I'm mad when I say this but the truth of it is not one of us will ever have the money Mm -hmm. to build something grand we just could never build the NHS on our own we could never build a train system on our own we could never build we could never build the universities you know the amazingly good universities considering how large we are as a kind of force Mm -hmm. 
we could never build this kind of intellectual life. We could never build the Tate Modern. We could never build any of this stuff if we didn't put our money together. And I think putting our money together is quite a natural life-affirming act. You know, I think everybody wants to be in the round. Nobody wants to be sitting in the corner mm-hmm. buying their own drink. Everybody wants to be in a round. So then, what, how have people fallen out of love with tax, I suppose, is the question. I think... Partly, it's a kind of self-tightening coil with the political discourse. So, after 1992, politicians started, they just accepted en masse this consensus that Mm -hmm. you couldn't win an election talking about tax. You couldn't win an election in which anybody's tax would go up. Mm -hmm. So, they started to all say that no tax would go up. And that led to some really dodgy things like PFI, if it hadn't been for, if it hadn't been for the Labour pledge to keep to the Tory spending promises, they wouldn't have had to borrow all that money from the private sector. Mm-hmm. They could have said, we'll levy it in tax or we'll borrow it in debt. So that kind of led to a situation where they weren't comfortable ever talking about it, so they never talked about it in positive terms. But the, the other thing is that they aren't... We've seen all the things that our tax paid for being eroded quite systematically over the course of our entire lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the... The NHS, with all the kind of nefarious private sector deals, the tertiary education, which is now going to leave people in huge amounts, huge, awe-inspiring amounts of debt. All these things which were the kind of function of tax are now a function of the individual. So all the things which I would once have said you would be proud of are quite difficult to Mm -hmm. conceive of, you know, somebody else doing them for you. Now people think, well, my kid is going to have to spend 50 grand. I need to save it. I cannot afford to pay tax. Mm -hmm. And my line to that is always, you probably can if you're a kind of really careful, frugal, professional person, save enough to put your kid through a three-year degree course if your kid is really smart, chooses the right degree, doesn't drop out, doesn't experiment with drugs, doesn't have depression, doesn't get panic attacks, doesn't get glandular fever, doesn't go to Italy for five years for a laugh. If your kid is like really straight and narrow, then you probably can save for it. Mm -hmm. But you don't have enough for a spread bet. And all of us know that that's what we actually need. I don't know what my kids are going to turn out. Or we should deserve. Yeah, I mean, of course we deserve deserve to piss off to Italy for five years, not necessarily get glandular fever. Exactly, but we we don't deserve viral infections, but we do deserve the freedom to say, well, I'm not ready to do that yet, and I'm not, that's not the person I am. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you talk to kind of entrepreneurs, these people who are meant to be so impressed by it because they're the wealth creators... They almost never once came out of school with three A stars and then Mm -hmm. went straight to university and then came out and did everything in the right order. You know, people who do creative things or do kind of interesting, innovative things don't do them in the right order. Christopher Bolin. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleadams.com. So let's finish off then talking about, in very general terms, 
problems? <laughs> what can be done? How can we... I guess not necessarily what can be done, how can we fix everything, but as there is an election tomorrow, although yeah. if you haven't registered already, it's far too late for all that, so <laughs> this is a bit futile, but how can we re-engage people? I don't... You see, I don't think people are disengaged. I think they hate politics. They hate politicians, but they don't hate politics. Um, I don't think... So I'm not... I've got a lot of sympathy with both positions, you know. People... I know people who won't vote because they say it just encourages them. I know people who think voting is the most important single thing you can do. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is that important because I don't think... I mean, it's possible. It's possible with the SNP that that is an important vote, but it's very. It's, it's no, it makes no difference in my constituency who I vote for. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I'll make some kind of massive system change by voting Green when I've got a sitting Labour MP is just daft, you know. But I think... The problem with all of us, include, um, I include myself, <laughs> is that we're waiting for a party to come along that represents us and we're mm-hmm. waiting for a, party, for a leader to come along who really means something to us and we're waiting for all these things to happen before we can start being active. It's like, and, and that's a particular thing. I mean, we, you know, I said we, we, we have to be, um, we'd be balanced in this, in this interview, but, you know, we are talking both from a, a, a leftist perspective, even if we're not pinning a banner to any particular of the, of the numerous parties. Um, particularly on the left, there is this idea that there's no point doing the little things yeah, yeah, unless yeah, yeah. there's a revolution. You know, we, yeah. There's no point yeah. doing anything if you can't do everything. I know, I know, I know. And also there's no point making an alliance with anybody if they're not perfect mm-hmm. by your definition of perfect, which is almost nobody. I mean, I'm not even perfect by my own definition of perfect, so I can't expect you to be. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I know exactly what you mean. I think the kind of three hurdles to overcome are, firstly, you're allowed to argue for greater equality without arguing for North Korea, you know. You don't have to... The problem with the, the self-interest argument is very, very obvious, right? And you, there's no chance of you being a hypocrite making a self-interested argument mm-hmm. because you, you make the argument, you say society works better if we all work in our own interests, and here I am working in my own interests. There's nobody who could unpick that unless they secretly found you chowling somebody else's allotment. Making a kind of cooperative, collective argument, you are always kind of, you're always flawed. You've always done something wrong. In the end, at the end of the day, I do care more about my own children than anybody else's children, mm-hmm. but I still think that view is compatible with saying a solution that suits all of our children will be better for all of our children. And, you know, no, everybody always feels really bad. They're like, well, I'm a lefty, but I've bought some new shoes. <laughs> or I'm a green, but I've, I've got a car. Or, you know, you always feel like if you can't be perfect, then there's no point. So that's the first hurdle to overcome. There's always a point. There's a point to everything. The second thing is, it really is, we really are at a point in our lives where the problems are bad enough that any it's a free-for-all, I think. Mm-hmm. So if you really think housing is incredibly problematic then don't vote for a party whose manifesto, which you don't completely believe, gives you 13% of what you want, you mm-hmm. know. You need to join a housing collective or a housing pressure group or you need to go and support people who are occupying a housing estate or you need to, you need to actually... The inconvenient thing about socialism, somebody once said, is that it takes a lot of evenings. <laughs> but, you know, whether you, whether you do a lot of evenings or a few evenings or just... You know, every single thing you do, in the words of the Tesco motto, is something that cannot be ignored. So, you know, 
I really, I'm a great believer in just joining and seeing what happens. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have perfect allegiance with every single person in the group. You don't need for it all to be pure. But you need to be there because the Messiah isn't going to come. I doubt that the Messiah ever came in the first place. But we're not going to get a Messiah. We're going to get a movement that we all build. That's a good point for us to finish. I think we, uh, we managed to, to get through the show without... Without breaking any rules, but I think we might get some angry emails from Gabon or something, but, you know, we can deal with that. Go out and vote tomorrow. That's really important. We have to say that. So I've been talking to Zoe Williams. We've been talking about her book, Get It Together, Why We Deserve Better Politics. Zoe, thank you so much for coming in. And thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.